Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. The wrong car, the wrong driveway, the wrong house. Wrong place shootings aren't a new phenomenon in the U.S., but in recent weeks, there have been several high-profile examples of people being shot after being in the wrong place at the wrong time. In New York, 20-year-old Kaylin Gillis was killed, and in Missouri, 16-year-old Ralph Yarl was wounded by gunshots to the head and arm. Here in Connecticut, 12-year-old Secret Pierce was killed by a bullet that was likely intended for someone else, while the 12-year-old was simply sitting in a car. These are just three examples of this kind of gun violence. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today, we tease apart the biggest news stories in recent weeks. Later, we'll discuss the history of cable news and the latest firings at CNN and Fox News. But first, a discussion about gun violence and how it can be prevented. Leonard Jihad is executive director of Connecticut Violence Intervention Program. And Jeremy Stein is executive director of Connecticut Against Gun Violence. Jeremy and Leonard, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you for having us. Great morning. Jeremy, let's start with you. So before we, you know, get into this discussion, the inescapable discussion about gun violence and trauma happening in the United States and, of course, happening across Connecticut, I want to give our listeners a little background. Share with us about your organization, Connecticut Against Gun Violence. Sure. Thank you. Um, We have been around for about 30 years, a little more than 30 years. We were founded in Bridgeport, Connecticut after a drive-by shooting uh, took the life of a young girl who happened to be uh, on a school bus. This happened in Bridgeport, Connecticut at the height of uh, the drug wars that were happening in the United States. Um, And many cities like Bridgeport were plagued uh, by gun violence. And the way that our organization has chosen to try to solve this public health crisis is by stronger gun laws for the last 30 years, um, uh, our organization and many other people who have joined us have fought for stronger gun laws in Connecticut. And as a result, we have some of the strongest gun laws in the country. Thank you, Jeremy. You've been doing this for 30 years. I want to now bring in Leonard Jihad because your organization is newer, but is certainly working on the same kind of issues and tensions that Jeremy and his organization have. Talk to us about Connecticut Violence Intervention Program. The agency was founded in 2019, but the um, our major program, the Street Outreach Worker Program, came to New Haven in 2008. Upon retirement and adult probation, I retired as chief probation officer in 2015. Uh, I assumed the role as program manager of the Street Outreach Worker Program under another agency. In 2019, um, I formed a nonprofit uh, to continue the work. So we work with uh, youth that are engaged in the most risky activity in the greater New Haven community. So by risky, we allude to uh, shooters, um, so-called gang members, gang members or group members, and also victims of community violence. And we also work with the violent reentry population. So I want to come back to 
something that you said, Jeremy, that your organization was founded after the the murder of a young girl who was riding on a school bus. And it has me thinking about what we're talking about in this country right now. And that is the sort of spate of so-called wrong place shootings of someone being in a place, the wrong place, quote unquote, and having this harm, this death or this violence and the many ways that that is creating new conversation. We've heard in the news about a person who went to the wrong house or appeared in the wrong driveway and that led to an injury or to, to death. Why do you think this keeps happening, that we have these events, whether we're talking about cities or rural areas, where we are seeing these sort of wrong place shootings that are happening across the board? Why does this keep happening? It's simple. It's the guns. Um, We have more guns in the United States than any other country in the world, and we have more gun death than any other country in the world. And that is not a coincidence. Um, we've seen study after study. The data is very clear. The more guns you have, the more gun death you're going to have. So, you know, I would argue that it it shouldn't even really be called the wrong place. Um, you know, with uh, the case in Missouri, with this young kid who was in a marching band, 16 years old, doing the right thing by picking up his little brother from, from a house, um, he he was ju- he just happened to be at the wrong house, but um, he wasn't committing a crime. He wasn't trying to break into someone's house. He wasn't harming someone. He wasn't even dangerous. And yet what happened? Right. Someone with a gun who probably had racist intent shot him, could have killed him. And this happens over and over. We see this all the time. Um I think you know there was another scenario very recently where there uh, I think it was in New Mexico where police officers were executing a warrant um they also happened to be at at the wrong house but nonetheless they had a legal right to 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 be where they were someone came out of the house with a gun armed and the police saw someone armed with a gun and before thinking instinct came in and they they shot someone so I think there is it's a it's twofold. I think it is the overabundance of firearms in the United States. And there is this fear that is being driven by this. And a lot of this fear is also um, being driven by organizations like the NRA and other such organizations, this fear mongering of the only way you're going to survive and keep your family safe is by having a gun, right? And we know this is absolutely not true. Even just having a gun in your home increases the risk of homicide, suicide, accidental death, domestic violence. All of these numbers go up exponentially. And the chance of you using a gun to defend yourself, um, you know, with in, in your legal uh, means, you know, legally entitled to defend yourself and actually use that gun to do so is less than 1%. Leonard, let's talk about risk because... What Jeremy has just laid out in terms of the perceived risk that people face versus their actual risk. You had a long career in law enforcement. And I think that's an important point, because often when we talk about these issues, it is the community versus law enforcement. At the same time, we have a tendency as a state and as a country to look at certain communities and dismiss the risk that they face or assume they're more of a threat. How do issues of race, class, where you live, 
play into this broader discussion that Jeremy is mentioning in terms of who's considered at risk and who has the right to address that risk. We do a lot of mediation in my program. So mediation is um, for more, more so for the reentry population. And we're trying to change the culture around the thinking that you have to use a gun to settle beef or to settle any type of conflict. But if you think that someone that you're in conflict may have a gun, then you're going to carry a gun to arm yourself also. So I'll go back to 2000, uh, 2013. We had a violent offender unit that we created in New Haven Adult Probation to address um, a spike in homicides in New Haven in 2011, which in that year there were uh, 34 homicides. And we had three young men who were totally compliant with probation. They reported as directed. Their urines were clean. Um, everything. They were totally compliant. But they committed homicides because they carried guns because of perceived beef. And so what happened was they got out of jail, their reentry, but they were never ever to um, be in a position where they can meet the person where who had they offended in their instant offense. And they thought that they had to carry a gun because they thought that that person may be coming back after them. No one really wants to carry a gun because a, a lot of times a gun is not uh, stored safely. And also puts them at risk, you know, going back to jail. But when we do these mediations, you know, we, there's no resulting violence. We have not had one instance of resulting violence after we do the mediation because both sides, you know, want to reduce their vulnerability. So, I mean, it just makes sense, but it makes so much sense that we don't do it. And we're so right now, um, you know, we have this whole thing with the, the Board of Pardons and everything where they're releasing people after doing 20, 30 years, you know, um, of incarceration, where they're being reviewed, you know, for reentry into the community. But we're not even preparing the victim, you know, for the hearing, you know, information about their incarceration. Maybe this person has changed, but there's no conversation or anything that's done, you know, prior to the hearing. And then the, the victim is, you know, felt, you know, um, left feeling helpless. Jeremy, weigh in here, please. You know, I think in addition to the desire um and this um this false belief that the gun will save you it's also the laws that you have in a state in in any given state that are playing a role in this uh increase in violence as well and and what i mean by that is stand your ground laws and uh you know what they call castle doctrine laws which Connecticut doesn't have and actually has specifically rejected year after year, even though certain legislators have tried to enact it. But places like Missouri, um, where this shooting happened with this young kid, um, they do have both of those laws, stand your ground and, and castle doctrine laws. And what those laws basically do is say, if you do not have a duty to retreat and you are allowed to use deadly force, if you feel reasonably feel that you are at risk for harm, um, and what that means is that if you're if it's easy to get a gun um, and you've been told time and time again, hey, you know, good guy with the gun is the only way to save your life and your family. And oh, by the way, if you just feel the slightest bit of fear that a person is outside your home is going to harm you or your family, you can shoot them dead on the spot without ever, even making the minimal effort of trying to minimize that risk or to de-escalate the situation. You're going to end up with a lot of gun death. And we know, once again, from, from looking at the data that even states like Missouri, who um, once they enacted these types of laws, 
violence skyrocketed, uh, murders went up, and and states that have enacted these laws, we've seen the same thing around the country that that stand your ground laws increase levels of violence, as well as increase the level of of racism, um, and it usually results in the end and, and it ends up with seeing an increase in the number of of black people are dying by gun violence, specifically young black males. Jeremy, I want to continue that point because you've talked about laws, you've talked about the context, but to me, the other piece of this is culture. And what happens when there's a culture of fear that can play on the kinds of stereotypes, fears that people have, whether it's viewed as rational or irrational, it is real and it has a real impact on behavior. And I'm thinking here of the shooting of Ralph Yarl that you mentioned, this young man who went to pick up his siblings, went to the wrong home and a homeowner shot at him multiple times. And the grandson of that uh, alleged shooter has said he believes that his grandfather developed racist views from watching right-wing media like Fox News. What's the role of media in all of this? So that, you know, having a law in the books, having access is one thing, but that culture of fear, that culture of blame for particular groups, what's the role of media in contributing to some of these trends? Media plays a very important role in this. And, you know, and sometimes when we're talking about um, media outlets that really don't care about facts, um, it's not it's not the news anymore. It's not facts. It's propaganda, which, um, you know, builds this culture of fear, builds this culture of racism, of xenophobia, of, you know, of this um, false belief that anything that's different than you is going to come to your house, harm you, take your jobs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we saw we saw this with the last administration. Um, and as a result, what happens when you add fuel to that fire of a, of people who already feel an insecurity, add a little dash of uh, the pandemic, take away resources, jobs, community centers, and then and then and then make it really easy to get deadly weapons like firearms, and you're going to end up with a powder keg of violence, and that's what's happening in this country. We really need to change the culture. Um, we need to invest in our communities and increase the quality of life in some of these communities. But we also need to invest in organizations like jihads um, that that are doing violence intervention work, you know, prevention, intervention, and and providing aftercare services um, in communities. And and this is you know this is different than what we've traditionally invested in, which is just the police, which are necessary. But we also have to be looking at the prevention side of it, looking at not only just um, how do we limit access to firearms, but how do we limit the demand for such firearms? When we return, more from our discussion of gun violence in Connecticut and across the country. Anti-violence advocate Leonard Jihad will talk about efforts to address gun violence after the mass shooting in Newtown. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. 
It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygen it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're putting some of the biggest recent news stories into context. Later, Lisa Napoli will talk about the shakeups in the cable news world. She's author of Up All Night, Ted Turner, CNN, and the birth of 24-hour news. But first, more from our discussion about gun violence. Leonard Jihad is executive director of Connecticut Violence Intervention Program, and Jeremy Stein is executive director of Connecticut Against Gun Violence. After mass shootings, people often say, this shouldn't happen here. But the reality is that that kind of pain and trauma and loss shouldn't happen anywhere. People often overlook the everyday violence that Leonard's organization is addressing. I asked him to tell us more about how he's working to change our response to violence. Also asked about his organization's work with the Ethan Miller Song Foundation. When you asked that question, I immediately thought about um, the uh, the tragedy that happened at Sandy Hook. And um, that day, I just went to a funeral in New Haven for a young man who was killed, uh, who was 17 years old. And then I received a notification about what had happened at, at um, Sandy Hook in Newtown. And so when I went to the funeral, they said there were two dead. And then when I left the funeral, they said there were eight. And then the numbers just kept, you know, uh, multiplying. And so I took off up there and I said, you know, I, I, I've got to help. And I saw some of the pictures and I stopped and I came back to New Haven. I, I couldn't drive anymore. But subsequent to that, um, I did go up and some of my my, my, um, my fraternity members and everything. We went up to Newtown and um, they had so many services in place. They had so many services. They had um, social workers that came in, not only regionally, but nationally who came into uh, Sandy Hook. So they not only worked with the uh, the families in the school that was affected, but they went to um, the, the letter carriers. They went into the Dunkin' Donuts and the Starbucks. They went to the entire community and they helped in the healing. And so I was thinking, I said, well, when this happens, I just went to a funeral for a young man who was killed. Now, you know, both are tragedies, you know, it was a singular event. And I said, in the back of my mind, I said, there's going to be some real change because of this. And um, there has been a lot of legislation. And Jeremy has been, um, you know, leading this legislation and everything, but not enough has changed. I just thought that would be a groundbreaking moment because, um, you know, locally and nationally, we've seen that they won't do enough to affect change in the urban community. But I said, they still don't care enough about our kids to even change it when it happens in an affluent community, you know, like Sandy Hook. And um, I was just thinking, I said, New Town, New Haven, you know, like these sister cities, things happen. And really, they still don't care. Not enough has happened or not enough care has happened in response to that. Because, you know, we may get social workers, we may, 
get social workers in our school after a child is harmed, you know, for the day. But it hasn't affected the entire culture. But every day a shot fired, a non-fatal shooting, you know, even a homicide, how it affects and it ripples in our community and not enough is done, you know, on the local level. So, you know, we do partner with, um, you know, Kristen Song, who's a good friend of mine. I call her my sister, you know, the Ethan Miller Song Foundation, just to just say, we're not trying to take your guns because, you know, the mindset right now, we can't attack that. But can you just keep your weapons safe and away from children to protect our children? And nationally, she's I mean, she just came back last week from D.C. trying to fight again. Just store your weapon safely. That's all we're asking. But anything regarding a weapon, we can't even have a conversation with. People just start getting angry. They just go straight to 10 with the angry. You're not taking my guns. We're not trying to take your guns. We just want to keep children safe. Jeremy, my listeners will hear this conversation. Some will be overwhelmed. Some will be moved to action. Some will just be moved to say, that's unfortunate. What can be done? about this from a legal perspective? What are one or two action items that we could take so that we don't have to keep having this conversation 30 years from now, but we've actually taken committed action to change? What can we do? Where it starts with is get involved. You want change? Let your voice be heard. Um, You don't have to join Connecticut Against Gun Violence. You can join any of the organizations. But the point is, we have legislation right now that we need passed in Connecticut, we need to strengthen our gun laws. And there are many different laws that we're trying to pass this year. Um, One is a a 90 page uh, gun package that the governor has proposed, which is um, geared towards strengthening our gun laws. And one of the things that is at the top of that list is to strengthen our safe storage mandates in Connecticut to make sure that guns stay to the hands of not only children, but people who might harm themselves or others, um, and to make sure that when the guns are not being used, that they're safely stored away. There's many other things in that bill, assault weapons ban, strengthening that already existing law in Connecticut. Um, But I think also the, the most important piece that we have in Connecticut right now is to increase funding for community, um, community violence, interruption uh, and prevention to make sure that the brand new state uh, commission, the the commission on the prevention intervention uh, of gun violence is properly funded right now. There is um, a proposal um, for, uh, originally it was $2.5 million to fund some of these community groups. And we believe that number is a drop in the bucket and should be increased to $10 million per year, which is still a drop in the bucket. Um, But, if we are right now, we spend over $90 million every year after the fact, hospitals, police, this is the cost of gun violence every year in Connecticut. And we just spend a fraction of that in prevention and to use that money to fund organizations that are out on the streets, a lot of times doing the work when we sleep to prevent the next shooting from happening. That's what we really need in Connecticut. So We need, it is all hands on deck. We need people to come to the Capitol. We need people to talk to their legislators. We need people to make sure that we are properly um, funding gun violence prevention efforts. Um, We hear there's going to be uh, a appropriations hearing possibly next week on the governor's gun bill. Um, And we urge people to contact their legislators to to make sure that that bill gets out of appropriations so that, uh, and tell their legislators that 
We want to fund solutions that are going to end gun violence. The other thing I want to add is it's something that Jihad mentioned about Sandy Hook and something you mentioned about making sure our children are safe, right? And it's and it's how we we started this conversation about being in the wrong place, right, at the wrong time. And I think we have to ask ourselves as a country, whose children are we really protecting, right? Are, are we protecting all children equally? Um, and we really have to ask ourselves that. Are, are black and brown children being protected the same way as white children in this country? Um, and, um, and, and in order to do that, we need to make sure that we're investing in our communities, but because being in the wrong place at the wrong time, we just saw a shooting in Hartford, young 12 year old girl was sitting in a car and was killed by a stray bullet, not, not a stray bullet. This was an intentional shooting, but it was a drive by shooting. She was not the intended target, but she was killed while sitting in a car in front of her house. Um, this young 12-year-old was the daughter of Shane Oliver. Shane Oliver was killed weeks before Sandy Hook. And Janet Rice, who used to work for us as a, as a community outreach coordinator, she has now lost both her son and her granddaughter to gun violence. Um, and were these people in the wrong place? Well, I think in America, if you're Black and you're living in America where there's um, you know ease of access to firearms, then every place becomes the wrong place. Leonard, Jeremy talked about some of the legislative possibilities that are happening. He talked about other broader conversations. And I will say to you that when I heard about the shooting of the 12-year-old in Hartford, I just was like, where, where do we, how do we go forward in this? When a 12-year-old child like let's call a thing a thing, a child sitting in a car doesn't get to go to school the next day. And her classmates come to school to an empty chair and her teachers have to figure out how do we keep these kids going when we know what they're feeling when even the, the social workers and the counselors who have to be on site have to then process this. And so to our listeners in, in the interest of full disclosure, uh, Leonard Jihad is a, a dear family friend and in my family, the minute that we hear about a shooting and active violence in the New Haven area, we know, Leonard, that you and your team will be dispatched. And we also know that for every one shooting we hear about on the news, there are five to 10 that your group has helped prevent from getting to that point. In saying that we need more workers, we need more community intervention. How do we get there? That's important. But how do we also think about the broader impact of this violence and this harm on the people who have to continually show up in emergency rooms, in courtrooms, in funerals, in homes to prevent that. How do we think about that impact of trauma and harm on entire communities, not just the people who were shot, whether it was in a the wrong place or not, whatever that means. How do we think about the collective impact of all of this? It's... um. It's, it's, it's frustrating because, again, you know, it's almost like we're chasing our tails when, you know, the the police and New Haven police do a phenomenal job. And, um, you know, we have an intimate relationship, you know, with the chief, you know, who's a good friend of mine also, you know, but collectively at the end of the year, when they say they have 275 guns that they've recovered, you know, anytime you can go up to the Berlin Turnpike and go up to some of the gun shops up there, you can walk in that eight o'clock in the morning and not get your number called until two o'clock in the afternoon. 
So um, now we have ghost guns and, you know, we have 50 round clips that these kids can get um, mailed to their house and they have them. And, you know, I, I talked to the kids about turning in their, you know, their, their clips and they said, oh, do you need one? I can get you one. You know, I can just replace that one, you know. So, again, we have to change that culture. And I just get frustrated when responsible adults or so-called responsible adults aren't doing everything we can to protect the lives of children. I mean, you know, I served in the Army. You know, I'm a proud American. However, I get pissed off when I hear about New Zealand. There was one mass shooting. They said, that's it. We're taking everyone's guns. And they haven't had another mass shooting. You know, we should be doing everything that we can to protect our children. Because, again, one shot fired. Can that child really go back to sleep at night? They can't go back to sleep. You know, um, my team, you know, we were trying to do everything. So we're trying to do case management. We're trying to be in the community. We're at the club letouts. We're at the hospital after a shooting. And so the the, the team that I, I um, have, my violence prevention professional, they're, they're also known as credible messengers. By credible, these people who were in that life, they were in the streets. Some actually, you know, they have real life experiences and some were incarcerated for extended amounts of time and they have harmed someone. So now they're going to the hospital. And then after a shooting, you know, um, there's that guilt that they have also, you know, when they hear the response from the community and the family and the mother's howl when she hears that, you know, her child has died and they're feeling that guilt also. And last point, um, when I worked probation, I know when someone came to probation because of anger or, or you know, whatever issue was, we would give them cognitive behavioral therapy treatment. So we were trained in it, but we also, you know, farm it out, you know, to professionals in the community. And I said, well, if we are trying to elicit behavior change, why don't we do this before they offend and go into the criminal justice system? And the response from the public school system is that we don't have time. We have our own curriculum. I said, but you do training for active shooters and everything else. So why can't we do this before to prevent certain things from happening? Jeremy, much of our conversation around gun deaths today has been about gun violence, right? Violence related to guns, death, harm, the cumulative impact. But across this country and even in Connecticut, Many gun deaths are actually the result of suicides. And when we're talking about the impact on community, when we are talking about the vulnerability of law enforcement and public safety for whom suicide, death by gun is often a very high um, percentage in reality too, we sort of overlook that. Why do you think we don't pay attention to suicide and that kind of harm related to gun deaths? And do you think that if we brought that into the conversation more, it might move toward the kinds of changes that Leonard is saying needs to happen so that we see holistically why this is a, a problem for all of us, not just for those who live in particular communities? Suicide by gun is a huge problem in, in the United States. Um, it is something that um, Connecticut Against Gun Violence is is focused on reducing. Um, in fact, um, uh, suicide by gun and community level gun violence are our two priorities. And those are the biggest numbers. Typically, two thirds of all gun violence is suicide by gun. And it's especially um, personal to myself and my family 
Um, my uncle took his own life with a firearm. Um, he was a Marine, uh, you know, he was a, a veteran, um, and he had depression and had ease, ease of access to a firearm. Um, and there are lots of things that we can do and that we have done in Connecticut and, um, and, and such as, um, making sure that, um, laws like Connecticut's uh, risk warrant, which is also referred to as an extreme risk protection order, uh, also referred around the country as red flag laws, those, that those are enacted and strengthened um, and around the country. And these are really important laws that will remove the gun from a very dangerous situation where someone's at imminent risk to harm themselves or others with due process. Um, but it's about getting the gun out of the hands of someone who is going to cause the next gun death, whether it's self death, you know, self-inflicted death, or it's going to a school or it's going into a church or a mosque or somewhere else. We know that those laws work for every um, 10, uh, five to 10 times that this is utilized. It saves a life. Um, but it's also about education. It's about making sure that people who are at very high risk, um, and that's a different population than those are at high risk in our cities. Typically what we see with suicides, it's older white males. Um, and many times it's people who have uh, firearms for their day-to-day -day jobs or had it for the day-to-day -day jobs. So we're talking about law enforcement officers. We're talking about military um, people who have access to firearms and usually keep them in their home, be, whether it's part of their job or part of their culture. Um, but we need to start talking about this. We need to not be afraid of this. We need to make sure that when we are talking about suicide prevention, we're also talking about guns. And I think there is this reluctance both to talk about suicide. I know it, it's a stigma in many homes and, and you know, to, to kind of ignore that someone completed suicide. Um, and, um, you know, and, but also to make sure that we're talking about in terms of, of guns, because the means matter. We know that when people attempt suicide with any other means other than a firearm, it usually isn't successful. Only about 20% of the time are people successful in completing suicide when they don't use a gun. But if they use a gun and they have access to a gun, it's almost always almost always results in death about 90% of the time. And so we have to make sure that whether we're talking about suicide or community level gun violence, or, 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 or we are, we are, we are focusing on prevention and we can't just wait as, as Leonard said, we can't wait until after the next shooting happens to decide whether, what we're going to do, because we're not losing New Zealand. We're, we don't act that quickly in the United States. And that was one of the things that New Zealand did is they acted very quickly um, when, whether we're talking about New Zealand or Norway or the UK, um, these countries acted very quickly and we just haven't done that in the United States. And it's shameful. Jeremy Stein is executive director of Connecticut Against Gun Violence. Leonard Jihad is executive director of Connecticut Violence Intervention Program. Thank you both for the work that you're doing on behalf of our state and on behalf of our nation. Thank you. Thank you. If you or someone you know is having thoughts of suicide, you can call the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. You can also text SAVE to 741-741 for the Crisis Text Line. Coming up, Lisa Napoli wrote a book about the history of CNN, the first cable news channel. 
When cable news started, she says few people would have cared about an anchor being fired. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're taking a deeper look at some of the biggest recent news stories. We now turn to the world of cable news. We begin with major on-air shakeups at Fox and CNN. We have some news from within our Fox family. Fox News Media and Tucker Carlson have mutually agreed to part ways. Don Lemon and CNN have parted ways. This is according to a memo that was sent out to CNN employees. Those changes come as both networks face controversy. Our next guest is Lisa Napoli. Lisa has worked as a writer, broadcaster, and public speaker. She's author of four books, including Up All Night, Ted Turner, CNN, and The Birth of 24-Hour News. Lisa, welcome to Disrupted. Oh my, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. On Monday, April 24th, Fox News ousted its very popular primetime host, Tucker Carlson. And on that same day, CNN parted ways with its news anchor, Don Lemon. Why did those firings draw such great public attention? And why do you think they happened at the same time? That's that's such a great question. I'll address the second question first, just because I think it's simpler. I think it's really just coincidence that, that all happened at the same time. But to your larger question, I'm so glad that we're having this conversation because back when cable news started 40 something years ago, it began June 1st, 1980, when they flipped the switch on CNN down in Atlanta. Uh, basically, no one really cared. No, this would have been inside industry kind of talk. It would have been um, just some conversation about another profession that no one else would have cared about. In fact, nobody even in the profession of journalism would have cared about CNN at the very start because nobody cared about CNN at the start. Nobody could see it. Uh, so we've just we've just evolved or devolved so far in these last 40 years where it has become entertainment. And because it has had such a huge influence on the way we perceive the world, the way we interact with the world, and certainly in the case of, of this situation, the way we've uh, handled our highest institution for the presidency. You worked as an intern at CNN a year yeah. after the channel launch. You know, 15 years before we had a Fox News, there was CNN. So that perspective of someone who saw what it took to build a news organization, to build a platform for cable news, and I want to point out a, a, a point that you just said, and you said evolve or devolve. <laughs> so as someone who is an historian and was a part of that growth and evolution, you know, what was your reaction to hearing this news and really the broader context that may have prompted those firings? In the earliest days of CNN, the people who were on the air were there as a utility to transmit the news. And no one really knew what the news 24 hours was going to look like or feel like. Now, pretty much anybody in any profession could tell you because they're getting bleats of headlines in every moment of the day. And they're aware of what's going on around the world. We're aware of what's going on around the world every minute of every day. Uh, but, but when I heard the news 
I thought, first of all, there's going to be a bonanza of people talking about it and dissecting it. And I hope that I can get included in the conversation or the idea of the conversation being about the history is discussed because the media literacy of it, the fact that we now are a society that hawks the news the way we hawk sports scores is pretty remarkable and and really says it has a huge commentary about where we stand as a society where voyeurs we want to see when people rise up and become famous whether they're you know typical celebrities who are musicians or actors etc or when they're crazy people on television just spouting whatever they need to be spouting in order to draw ratings and draw attention to themselves so it's natural that when they fall we're interested too. And that's that's the society we're living in right now. There's a lot less trust in news organizations, in journalists, because of this concern that is this opinion or is this news? Is this entertainment or is this enlightenment? And so that broader context of how the political space has really undermined the credibility or the, the trust that the public places makes these types of events even more part of the public consumption. And again, we also learned that the CEO of NBC Universal, Jeff Shell, was also fired. Thinking about what it means to have a top executive, to have very prominent hosts and anchors relieved against this backdrop of the public wants more access to news, but doesn't trust the people who are delivering that. What does that say for media literacy engagement and what could be done? Oh, it says that we're doing a terrible job of explaining to people at their earliest, you know, inception. You know, I spent some time in the kingdom of Bhutan when they introduced television there. Little tiny kingdom. People were really worried about the impact TV would have on society. And what did they do? Some very wise elders got together and said, we've got to teach these kids to understand what they're seeing on TV and parse it out, distill it, understand it the way we teach kids the ABCs, you know, uh, you know, that's an ongoing conversation too about what we can teach in the in the classrooms today but one of the essential things we're not teaching is how to look on television and say okay that woman is credible because she's got a certain background and or she's coming from a certain frame of mind or framework and i'm going to take what she says this way as opposed to just watching it mindlessly and having it dribble into us now you know you mentioned this this actually at the at the undercurrent i think of all of these firings the executive you just mentioned as well, is some sort of sexual harassment climate at, in a workplace or public comments in the in the case of Don Lemon about a presidential candidate and whether she's past her prime or not because she's a certain age. Uh, all of this is such an exciting time for conversation about things that when I was a young woman were not discussed. I worked for a major news organization uh, 20 years ago where I had to leave when I was sexually harassed, where I was drummed out of the place, not the man who had committed the offense against me, which was agreed was an offense against me. So when I hear all of this, you know, this is the benefit too of getting older, is that, at, you know, over the course of my career and these, as you pointed out, I started out as an intern in in 81 at CNN. Over the course of my career, I've seen so many things change for the better and for the worse. You wrote a book about the founding mothers of NPR. And I imagine that some of what those women faced in building out that space in 
contending with a profession that often does not value women or judges them based on very different superficial standards, that some of that context is relevant here when we talk about cable news. And I'm thinking here of another recent example. It's been quite a week in media was Mm -hmm. this announcement that Dana Bash will now host Inside Politics for CNN. And rather than focusing on her credentials, her experience, what she brings to this position, her insight to this, the headline was ex-wife of John King does this, (laughs) right? Yes. So it makes me wonder, Lisa, we've made important advances. We can now have conversations. We can hold people accountable. We can know when news outlets are falling short in upholding the integrity that, that listeners and viewers expect. And yet this is still what we're happening. How much progress have we really made (laughs) in this space? Well, look, we're having this conversation, right? The two of us are talking about this. So that's a good sign. Uh, Because back in the 70s, as you point out, the founding mothers, when they started there, you didn't hear women talking about substantial issues. You heard them maybe on the air talking about refrigerators or weddings or fashion, and they were almost universally white women back then. So we have definitely made progress. But uh, I I guess what I'd like to say is you can't eradicate stupid. And the only way that you can change any of this is what we all know so well. Certainly you and I know that the fact that we're behind a microphone, that we're given the power to ask questions and rise to positions that were previously off limits to us allows us to to help we change the dialogue a little bit, at least, you know, we can't change everything. We're not going to eradicate stupid across the way uh, or gossipy or whatever it is. Um, but we we can at least nudge the dialogue in the direction that we want to, which is why it is important that we have these conversations about people in the power, in the front lines of the media world, because when we're when different people, it's not just all women, but when different kinds of mentalities are in charge, then we have a better sense of or chance of advancing the dialogue in a more in- intelligent way. Now, that said, cable news got to make money. <laughs> it's got to make money. No two ways about it. So unless uh, Mackenzie Scott comes and underwrites cable news and says, okay, we're going to put some really smart, intelligent, intellectual people in charge, and we're not having junk on the air, that's probably not going to happen. We're not going to get away from this wackiness that we've had over the last 10 years that's been mounting for the last 40-something years uh, and have a great, thoughtful presidential dialogue. I've always thought we should collapse it to six weeks like other countries do. I wish we could. That might help. Um, if I had the answers, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you and writing books that hopefully a few people read. Uh, it's a crazy time. It's a crazy time now, but it was a crazy time 30, 40 years ago, yes. but in different ways. Share with our listeners what made 24-Hour News successful at its launch and what do you think we could bring forth today to keep 24-Hour News relevant and successful? When CNN launched, it it wasn't successful. It was the only game in town. There was only one all-news channel on cable. Cable was new. Only a couple million people around the country had it. And so as more people got, and this is the parallel is stunning when you look at the internet, because the same thing when I covered the New York, at the New York Times, the internet in the early uh, aughts, uh, the question was, or late 90s, 
um, the question was how influential it was. Well, it wasn't that influential because everybody wasn't on it, but now everybody's on it. So same thing with CNN. As cable grew, more and more people got on it. And you said at the very beginning, for 15 years, there was no Fox News. There was no competition. So until there's competition, I don't have to be crazy because if I'm the only place that you can get that information, I can be somber and 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 controlled. And they mostly were. They had some talk shows where people yelled at each other. But as the competition came in, that made it different. And they had to sex it up and they had to make the anchors look a certain way. They had to have them yelling a bit more to keep up with Fox, which didn't come out of the gate quite the way it is today, for sure. Um, so that's really the answer, is that at the beginning, CNN was run by people who whose guiding star, the news was the star. It wasn't a person who was hosting eight o'clock at night. I mean, that was an important person, of course, but it was mostly about the news. And all of the people who worked there would have agreed with that. The idea, Bernard Shaw, the first main star anchor at CNN, would never have liked the idea of him being considered a celebrity. And while I'm sure he was well-paid, he would never have been paid $20 million a year at the start. Uh, it's just slowly over time that this drip has infested the waters of cable news. I want to share the epigraph of your book, which is a quote from Ted Turner, because I think it speaks to what you've just lifted as competition, profit, and entertainment that has resulted in this change. And that quote says, someday I'm going to be the first person in the history of the world to talk to everyone. I'll be able to talk to all the world's leaders and bring peace to the world through television. <laughs> Lisa, do you think that vision is still possible? And if so, are we going to enter a new era of cable news where it may be a return or renewal of that commitment? Look, do I think it's still possible? I want to be optimistic. Uh, I do think that broadcasting is fraught because it costs money and there's nothing wrong with competition and profit. But once you introduce that, that's where the complication comes. And so, yes, I think with you and your colleagues at the helm in the future, we have some hope. But it's it's a murky one because you can't eradicate stupid. If people want to hear people screaming at each other about things that aren't true, then we're not going to fix everything, but we can be ports in the storm and and do what we can to introduce thoughtful, intelligent dialogue or media if it's not all dialogue. Lisa Napoli is writer, broadcaster, and author of Up All Night, Ted Turner, CNN, and the birth of 24-hour news. Lisa, thank you so much. Oh my goodness, thank you. Disrupted is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum, Wayne Edwards, Meg Dalton, and Katie Tularski. You can listen to all the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.